Well, today we're going to continue in our series to the book of Acts, almost, almost halfway through. Today we'll be in chapter 13. It's only 12 verses, so it should go fast, but I'm a preacher, so I'll never promise that uh, for sure. But it should be pretty quick, get you out of here hopefully soon. I know it's been an exciting day. Everybody's a little tired after vacation Bible school and probably could use a nap. So we'll, get start, we'll just jump right in and get started here. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. This is the moment... Uh, where things are going to get real serious as the gospel is going to be spread to other parts of the world. It's, it's mainly stayed in the area of, of Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas. We've seen glimpses of it here and there, of, of being taken to other places, but largely it stayed mostly with the Jewish people in, in Judea and Samaria. And today we're going to, to see how Paul and Barnabas are going to take that message and they're going to spread it throughout the world. And so this is the beginning of the very first missionary trip that Paul will go on. It says this, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. As they're doing what you and I have done today as they worship, praying, um, and fasting, calling on God for answers of what do we do next, God answers their call and says, I want you to set these two men apart, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, if you've been here for the, this series in the book of Acts, we've been introduced to them already. Uh, Barnabas and Saul are going to become quite the pair of missionaries as they leave from Antioch and are going to go try to take this good news to people who have not yet heard it. And so God chooses them through the Holy Spirit. The church places their hands on them and sends them off to, to minister to the Gentile people. Now, we don't know a lot about all the people that are listed here. Uh, so again, we've been introduced to Barnabas already and, and Saul. Simeon uh, it is a common Jewish name, so likely has his roots in, in, Jewish, in the Jewish faith. Niger, of course, meaning this is a Latin word for dark, so he probably had dark skin, possibly from Africa originally. Lucius is a common name from northern Africa, probably has his roots there. And Manon is a Greek form of a Jewish name. Uh, he is an interesting one, possibly referenced in Josephus. He grew up or around Herod the Tetrarch, so he comes probably from the most influence and wealth. Not sure if he was a free man who grew up with him or possibly a slave who grew up with him and then became a free man, but he probably has some position and knows and is connected and has some connections in, in their world. And of course, Saul, we've spent some time with, and you know his, his story. The story continues in verse 4 and 5. It says this, The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So we have Barnabas, we have Saul, and then here Luke adds John. Now, this is John Mark, the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. We, have, we saw him throughout the book of Acts. We see him in the Gospels. Probably a very young boy or a young man. Uh, many believe that his mom is the one who owned the home in which Jesus has the Last Supper. Uh, there's a hint in the Gospel of Mark that maybe he was actually there and, and around and saw parts of it. So John Mark has some, is an interesting character. He's also Barnabas' nephew. So it's, it's important to remember that as well. They're trying to bring him along to do what? Why would, why would Saul and Barnabas bring this young man, John, with them? Yeah, they think he can do what they do. 
right? They're going to disciple him. They're going to try to mentor him and turn him into, into a missionary himself. Uh, something that's important for all of us to remember is who are the people in our lives who have mentored us, who have guided us, who have helped bring us to where we are today. For John, those people are Saul and Barnabas. Those are two of those people. For you, it's going to be somebody different. But never forget the people who helped you along the way to get to where you are. Begin probably with your parents, hopefully if you had, if you had good parents, maybe grandparents, aunts, uncles, probably family at first, and then it became teachers and coaches and hopefully spiritual grandparents and, and parents, people who have helped you to get where you are. And John has two very, very important and powerful people in the Christian faith as two of those people he can he could count as people who had helped him to get to where he is. So I'm going to show you a map here of where they've where they're going and where they've, they've gone. So they started over here in Antioch. They came to Seleucia, which is obviously a port city on the bay, and they've, they've sailed to this Cyprus. Salamis is actually, was probably right in this area of, on the island of, of Cyprus. It's a small little island, and any time they, they get in a boat, now we get in boats all the time, don't think twice about it. In the ancient world, the rough estimates is a quarter to a third of every ship that, took, that sailed ended in shipwreck. It was a very dangerous affair. So if you have a fear of, say, flying, uh, you would have never gotten a ship in the ancient world because planes don't go down very often. Ships in the ancient world did. They sank pretty regularly. You'll see, uh, as we go through the book of Acts, that Paul will eventually have an experience where he's, he's shipwrecked. So to get on a boat, even though they're not going very far, is, is always dangerous, and it was limited to the time of the year in which you could sail. If not, you got to walk. Now, for them to get to Cyprus, there's no way of walking. unless you're, I mean, you could swim if you're a real great swimmer, but you probably would drown. So they have to sail. So they get in a boat from Seleucia and they sail to the island of, of Cyprus. And they do something that they're going to do throughout their missionary trips. And the first place they go to, when they get to any new city, is a Jewish synagogue. Now they do that, one, out of comfort, right? Who, Barnabas and Saul have grown up Jewish their entire lives. So when they go there, they know these people will have some ideas and some culture that's the same. The second is if you're going to go to somebody and tell them about this Messiah, the easiest people to, to talk to the Messiah about would be the people who are waiting for the Messiah. Right? Gentile people have no concern, no idea about this Jewish God. They have all kinds of other gods and goddesses they worship. And so Paul and Barnabas are going to go to, to Jewish synagogues first, see what happens there, try to, to talk about this Messiah, this Savior that was to come, and then from there they'll go to other people. We continue in the book of Acts, verse 6 through 11. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. Paphos is on the other side of the island, as you saw, the western side. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? <clears throat> now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. So as they travel, it doesn't take them very long to meet some opposition. And if you've lived life longer than about 60 seconds, you know that this is kind of how life goes, isn't it? There's mountaintops and there's valley lows. Now you can imagine their excitement as they, t as they get on board the ship, as they're going to go for the first time, take this, this Jesus, this message of hope, to these people who have never heard it before. As you remember, like, most of the time when we talk to people about Jesus, they've probably been to a church, they've been to a wedding, they've, been to, they've heard about it. 
for Paul and for Barnabas, these people have never, most of them will have never have heard about this Jesus. And so the excitement has to be great with them as, they, as they're going to take this message of good news and hope with them everywhere they go. And it takes them two cities in before they meet somebody who doesn't like them all that much. He's a Jewish sorcerer. He uses tricks and sleight of hand to get to the position he has. And when he sees Paul and Barnabas, he's a little bit intimidated. Now, what I wanted to point out to you is you probably caught it in verse 9. It's rather subtle, but we're going to have a shift. I've struggled with it the entire book of Acts, if you haven't caught on to that yet. But up until chapter 13, verse 9 in the book of Acts, Saul is Saul. And here in verse 9, it simply says, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, just real subtle, real, all of a sudden, but from now on in the book of Acts, it's no longer Saul. He'll go by, by Paul. Paul is simply the Greek version of his Jewish name, Saul. He, Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have probably been called Paul throughout his life, living, depending on where he lived. Not a big deal for him. For us, it's important to realize that something is changing. Something's happening. And the reason Saul goes, is, will now go by Paul isn't because he has nothing better to do besides change his name. It's because he's trying to get the people that he will be ministering to to be the most comfortable with him. And so he changes from Saul to Paul in order to reach Gentile people. Gentile people, of course, being people who are non-Jewish. And so he's going to go by his non-Jewish name. Paul actually tells us why he does this when he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what he said to the church in Corinth about freedom in the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he tells us, and them... And he became all things to all people to, to win some. Paul's not worried about his own identity. He's not worried about what, who he is or the legacy he lives. He's, all he's trying to do is bring the good news to as many people as possible. Paul, of course, being one of, if not the greatest, evangelists in Christian faith's history. As he says, I will become anything I have to, anything short of sin, to win as many as possible to this good news. Paul is not someone who is lukewarm. He is on fire. He will be on fire to the very end until the Emperor Nero eventually beheads him, according to church history, and has him killed. It doesn't stop. This is just the beginning of that here in Acts chapter 13. We're going to continue to see it as we work our way through Acts, that nothing will stop Paul. You're going to see that on this missionary trip, he's literally going to be stoned and not the Northern California stoned. The stone like they throw stones at your head, right? They try to kill him with stones. He drags himself out, half, half bloody, and beaten and nearly on death doorstep, goes to another town, then a few days later comes back to the town where they tried to stone him because he doesn't learn, right? 
Because he has a fire in his belly that cannot be quenched. And here you're going to see that. Paul becomes whatever he has to to whomever he has to in order to win some to this faith because he believes it with everything and every fiber of his being. And so, it's the reason he looks at this Elamos in verse 10 and calls him a child of the devil, which is not a good way of making friends, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with that. Calling people children of the devil will not make you friends with many people. Uh, Paul looks at him and says, hey, this is, I'm just going to, if there's anything we can say about Paul, he's the friend we all need that just gives you the truth no matter what. He's the friend you don't ask about the outfit you're wearing if you're unsure about it because they're just going to let you know. Uh, yep, yep, you look fat in it, right? That's, if, if you're looking for confidence, you're not the one, Paul's not the one to ask because uh, he's going to give it to you straight. And so he looks at Elmas and says, hey, you're the child of the devil, which is, again, not a great way of making friends, but Paul isn't worried all that much right here about making friends. Not only does he say you're a child of the devil, he says you're an enemy of everything that is right. Um, ouch, right? That's, that kind of hurts. You're full of all kinds of deceit, and trickery. Paul is just calling a spade a spade. He says, hey, I know you've made a living on tricking people and using sleight of hand and deception, but that's a dishonest way of making a living. You need to find yourself a new job. And because you've done that, because you've done it in God's name, right? He isn't just upset at him because he's just done it, but because he's trying to use God as his, as his power, Paul says this to him in verse 11. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. He says God is going to bring punishment on you, and that punishment is being blind. Now, if there's anybody who can tell us about God's punishment and about being blind, if you remember earlier in the book of Acts, who is it? It's this Saul who is now called Paul. As he makes his way trying to kill and persecute Christians, on that road to Damascus, what does God do to him? Strikes him blind. God realizes that sometimes to get our attention, he has to smack up upside the head, and some, some of us it takes two or three smacks before we get the idea, Right? You remember being a kid, if your mom had to, or dad had to get you a couple times, it's because you weren't learning very fast. Some of us don't learn all that fast. We're rather thick-skulled. And Saul was one of those people, and Elemis apparently is as well. And he says, hey, if you're not going to listen to me, if you want to see God's real power and God's real authority, guess what? It's going to be real hard for you to see here in a little bit. Matter of fact, you won't be able to see anything, including the light of the sun. And maybe then we'll get your attention. Maybe then you'll listen. So this section ends... Like this. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. As what Saul says comes true. Now, remember, what was Elymas? He was described as a sorcerer and a false prophet. How do you know a false prophet? When they say something that doesn't come true, then they're no longer a prophet. What does Saul do? Saul says, hey, this is what's going to happen. God's going to make you blind. And as the words come out of his mouth, what happens? He's blind. The proconsul sees that and goes, okay, wait a second here. I can believe in the guy who uses tricks and sleight of hand, or I can believe in the guy who speaks words and things happen. Right? We tend to, I don't know about you, I'm going to believe in the guy who speaks words and things happen. Saul speaks the word, God does it, and the proconsul believes. Puts his faith in this Jesus because he sees the power of his believers. Now this is quite an, quite an event and hopefully it doesn't take blindness for, for us, for God to get our attention, hopefully. But he's trying to always, isn't he? God is always trying to get our attention. Whether it's simply that, that moment when we came to faith, that all those times we look back and realize that God was there 
nudging us and pulling us. Or maybe it's times when we feel like we've fallen away or we feel as though God's not close or God's not there. God is all those things still. Our feelings don't dictate God's truth. We often like to believe that. We like to believe how we feel is true. Your feelings change. right? Your feelings change. My feelings change all the time. Our feelings aren't true. God and his word have always been and will always be true. And so we look to him. We look to his word when things get difficult and things get hard. And we find deep comfort and faith in it. I think that's one of the lessons that we learn from this story is who have we placed our faith in? If our faith is only placed in ourselves, if we are number one, then we are setting ourselves up for failure, aren't we? Because, spoiler alert, we're not all that great. I, I, I've lumped me in that category of not all that great. Uh, I will fail you at some point, I promise. I know myself well enough. You will fail yourself at some point, I promise. You should know that by now. The only one who will never fail us, who has promised to never leave us or forsake us, is God. He's the only one who will never fail us. And so have we placed our faith, our whole faith, our complete faith and our trust in him? If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. He's the only one who will never disappoint. Everybody else will be disappointed. As we saw here, Elamas had put his faith in himself, right? Because he could do tricks and make people believe that he was something special. When he wasn't, it was all a ruse, right? It was all deceit, trickery, it was all pretend. But when Paul and Barnabas show up with the Holy Spirit inside, then that same Holy Spirit that is inside of you, and they show God's true power and God's true authority, people believe. And this is the pro-council here, Sergius Paulus. This is going to be the first of many who hear the words, who see Paul and Barnabas live it out in real life, which isn't that most important. We can, we can bump our gums until we don't have a voice left. But if people don't see it in our lives, what's the point? If we talk about how faithful we are and how much we love this Jesus and then we look like everybody else in our everyday life, why would they believe? What you're going to notice about Paul and Barnabas is they walk the walk. And I believe one of the reasons that so many people come to know this Jesus because of them is because they're doing it. They're living it out in real life. It isn't just something they talk about or they sit on Sundays in church and then they go live like everybody else the rest of the week. It's because it's, it's taken root inside of them. And when they say it, the words come out of their mouth, they mean it. They do their very best to live it. Now, you and I aren't perfect. Sorry if you thought you were. I apologize if I just burst that bubble. We're not perfect. We're not always going to get it right. God knows that, and hopefully the people around us will give us grace as well. But if we're doing everything we possibly can to live a life worthy of this calling, as you're going to see Paul and Barnabas do, then our words will have meaning to them. Everybody has the relative or the friend who talks way too much about way too little. And when they start talking, you, you hit the mute button, right? Because you know whatever's coming out of their mouth probably isn't true or it's a half-truth. We should not be described that way. As Christians who are trying to take the good news with us wherever we go, our words have to matter and they have to be backed up by our actions, don't they? I believe far more people come to know Jesus because they see faithful Christians living it out every day than they'll ever do by a billboard or a commercial on TV or by us screaming and yelling at him with a, with a phone or holding a sign on a corner, I just don't think that works. Because how do I know the guy on the corner holding the sign telling me I'm going to hell really, really fast is worth following? He's probably not. But somebody who lives it out every day, 
that person is someone I'm going to listen to because they, it's taken root here. I know you've heard me say it time and time again. My, my professor in Bible college, Mr. Cornett, would say there's eight inches between heaven and hell. Eight inches between your head and your heart. If the gospel only ever stays here and you can recite all kinds of Bible verses and you can say all kinds of Christian words but it never takes root here, who cares? What's the point? Those things have to connect. Got to know the word of God here, know God's truth and his reality, but it has to connect to the heart and then it has to come out our hands, our feet, and our mouths. We have to be a different kind of people. People who, who love God and love others with everything we have. Essentially was our message at Vacation Bible School is first of all, children, God loves you. And that, God, that love that God has for you has to come out of you as well. We can't say we love God and hate everybody around us. That those two things, don't, that, that, that doesn't compute. If we're going to love God, we have to love people. And I know they're hard to love because I know me. I know I can be hard to love. The Christian life has never been promised to be easy. The promise was it would be worth it. It would be worth it. It's not always easy to love other people. It isn't, but it's the calling we've received. As you're going to see, Paul and Barnabas are going to love, and sometimes love, is, it hurts. And Paul loves Elymas, and that's the reason he gives him hard truths. We give hard truths to the people we love, do we not? If you see someone you love who's headed down a path of destruction and you sit idly by, do you love them? The, word, the answer is no. Sometimes love speaks hard truths, and Paul speaks some hard truths here. But he does it because he ultimately loves people. And if we love them, we'll speak truth to them when it's easy and when it's hard. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the example we have here in Acts 13 as Paul and Barnabas begin their first missionary trip, the first of many, as they go and take your good news to the people around them. Father, we, we thank you for their example of, of two men who have dedicated their lives to you, who are faithful to you in every way, knowing that they're not perfect, they don't always get it right, God, but they're giving everything they possibly can to serve you. God, we ask that you would give us that same courage and that same strength as we go about our day, whether it's at a ball game, the doctor's office, at work, at the grocery store, wherever we are, God, help us radiate your love to people who are in desperate need of it. Your hope, your mercy, your grace to people who are in desperate need of hope and mercy and grace, because we're all in desperate need of those things. God, we know that the only place where we can find those things is in you. And so we ask that you would take root inside of us, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, and you would help us to every single day be your hands and feet, to love a world that's in desperate need of loving. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you most for for your son Jesus, who gave us the perfect example of what it means to love you in everything. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said,